the last time we were together, we started out uh, speaking about uh, asking the question, if you are a genuine believer, are you free to do whatever you want? And we had various answers, and uh, essentially, we came to the conclusion, yes, but there are some who like to put stipulations on that, and there are some who uh, maybe are, uh, look at that verse and, and don't put any qualifications on it. The Corinthians had a, a statement, which was likely a slogan. It's found in 1 Corinthians 6.12. Everything is permissible for me. Probably uh, even a slogan that Paul had stated at one point, or all things are lawful for me. It was a way of declaring that because of Christ's death on the cross, Christians are very now free from the law. And so when we look at our passage, verses 12 through 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we find four misunderstandings about that freedom that, um, when cleared up, will help you to flee immoral behavior. Four misunderstandings that the Corinthians had that should help us to flee immorality. And the first one is they misunderstood freedom, verse 12. We've already seen this, so I'm just going to go quickly through these first three. They misunderstood freedom. In verse 12, it says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And when we talk about freedom, we typically have these two extremes, and one would be legalism and one would be libertinism. Legalism is any time you place uh, a restriction on someone that is not found in the Word of God. Um, And libertinism is sort of a view of anti-law or cheap grace. It's this idea that, well, I'm forgiven, I won't really ever be punished, and so I might as well just keep on sinning. And so uh, typically when you talk about freedom in Christ... We have these gut reactions of, but if I have freedom, what's going to keep me from sinning? Or um, uh, you might have an, uh, that you might lean towards that libertine side, or you might be lean towards that uh, legalistic side, where it's, uh, well, we have freedom, but not really, and uh, you know we shouldn't talk about freedom because it might lead to immorality and. And so I think that both of those are wrong positions. And I think each one of us, we all have a tendency to lean one way or the other. I I knew a couple one time where they introduced themselves to me, and she said, this is my husband, legalism, and I'm cheap grace. And that's how we interact with each other. And uh, just told me a lot about their marriage right off the bat. Really (laughs) interesting. But um, when we look at the issue of... uh, in Corinth, they leaned toward libertinism. They learned, leaned t- towards sinning freely, though they were in Christ. And Paul had taken the slogan that they were using it and reminded them that sin is never worth it, that you should never allow yourself to be enslaved by it, and that it's a lie to believe that somehow because you have freedom, because your sin has been paid for past, present, and future, that there will never be consequences for it. And so, though judicially there will never be consequences as from God as judge, parentally he will discipline those whom he loves. And so you should not allow yourself to be enslaved by it. Romans 6 tells us that... that no sin shall be master over you, or you will not, should not be 
um, mastered by any sin or enslaved by any sin. But we don't avoid immoral behavior primarily because we think we'll be punished for it judicially, um, nor do we, and, and that's, and in both of these, these categories, the libertinism says, well, I guess I shouldn't sin because if I sin, I am going to be punished for it. And so you have this kind of a almost masochistic, like, I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to beat myself up every time I sin. And those who are in libertinism, you find yourself in this cycle where you, you fall to your sinful behavior, and then you feel remorse, and then you beat yourself up over for it, and then uh, you fall to it again, and then you beat yourself up over for it, and you wonder why your life is not changing. And part of it is because the motivation for change is this punishment that you're trying to inflict upon yourself. And those who lean more towards legalism they almost have this sort of uh, freedom or this, it's, it's really a pride where I'm not going to sin because I feel so holy um, when I don't sin. And so they use pride and piety as a motivation to keep them from sin, which though it may be effective in some respects, pride itself is a sin. And so it's the wrong motivation for that. Even worse than that, would be a legalistic idea that somehow my abstaining from sin somehow gains my salvation, somehow is a work or something that adds to or keeps my salvation, which is a legalistic and anti-Christian, anti-biblical teaching. So you have these two extremes, and really what, what comes out... The balance between the two, the best motivation is that Christ died for your sins and you are free and you should be so overwhelmed with the fact that he died for your sins. The very sins that you have in your life that you struggle with, he paid for them and by thinking of Christ on the cross and the freedom he has granted you through the cleansing power of regeneration because of his sacrifice on the cross for your sins. You should be overwhelmed with gratitude, which should motivate you towards holy living. And that's the freedom that Paul is trying to convey, and they misunderstood freedom. It's not a license to sin. It's not legalism. It's freedom, true joy that should motivate you towards holy living. A second misunderstanding they had was not only freedom, but the body. Verses 13 and 14. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised up the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Now the Greeks had a view that was common in Greek thought in the first century, and that is that the body was completely separate from the soul. And the soul was eternal, and the body was temporary, and therefore it didn't matter what the body did. It wouldn't affect you for spiritually for eternity. It only mattered what your soul was involved in, and therefore they would have these slogans like, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. The principle here was applied to sexual immorality, and they're basically saying that sexual relations are just a bodily function. We, I need to eat, so I eat. It's just something I do, uh, and, you know, and so I, uh, my body cries out for sexual relationships, and so I just do that. It's purely biological. It's no big deal. But, says Paul, regarding food in the stomach, God will do away with them both. In other words, in heaven, you will not need to be sustained by food. 
food is only temporary. Uh, the stomach is only temporary. But don't confuse that with the body and what happens with the body because the body is intended for eternal purposes. Your body will be resurrected just as Christ's body was resurrected. And so there's a focus here on the resurrection. It says in verse 14, God has not only raised up the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. And your body was intended to house a spirit that will worship the Lord for all eternity. And your body, though now is not in its glorified state, one day will be raised up in its glorified state and be with the Lord. So don't confuse that with this false teaching going on in Greece. That was a misunderstanding that they had. And so the Corinthians misunderstood freedom. They, understood, they misunderstood the body, which is for the Lord, according to verse 13. A third misunderstanding that we've seen already in our passage is that uh, they misunderstood immorality. And how are you going to flee from immorality if you don't understand immorality altogether? And that's in verses 15 through 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, which say this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body." So in these verses, verses 15 through 18, we really see two unions emphasized here that really highlight the devastation of sin. One is the union of the believer with Christ, and the other is the union of a husband and a wife. Both of those are seen very clearly in Scripture, but of interest to us is the one in verse 18, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So the question that we actually talked about last time, which I'll just open it up this time just to see how we're doing because it's been a couple of weeks, but how is every other sin outside the body? How is it that sexual immorality, which is the chief sin in mind here in this passage, is not outside the body, but every other sin like gluttony or drunkenness or drugs, those are somehow outside of the body? What is he saying here? It's not just a bodily function, right? That's what he said before. Um, and every sin, every sin, I mean, affects the body, right? Drunkenness affects the body, um, and drugs do, gluttony does. Um, but he seems to be teaching here that the most intimate, precious human relationship that we can know physically on this earth, when, when we commit sexual sin, which is something that is designed for marriage, and we sin against our spouses, whether you are married or yet to be married, or whether you simply are sinning against the Lord if he is your Lord, it rises somehow from within the body, and it has a way of internally destroying a person like no other sin. Somehow the effects of this are inward. Um, it is a misuse of God's design on the deepest level. You take something that is intended to be beautiful and fulfilling and creative, 
and outside of, a, of marriage, it has a way of destroying people. And if you have been trapped in sexual sin, you know that it eats away from you internally if you are trying to follow Christ. And even those who are enslaved into uh, prostitution or sexual immorality, there is an emptiness, an aching inside of them that, that really, uh, though they try to cover it up, though they might do a good job at covering it up, ultimately when they're broken over their sin, you see a hollowness there. Um, there's a rotting on the inside, working its way out and affecting really their whole being. But the good news is that Christ died to cleanse you from the rottenness that has been spreading in your innermost parts. Hebrews 9.14 says that if the blood and, of rams and goats in the Old Testament symbolically purified people, then Hebrews 9.14 says, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And the Corinthians were in need of that cleansing work, and they had been cleansed. Earlier, he had said, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed. They had been sanctified, set apart for the Lord's purpose. And so they misunderstood freedom, they misunderstood the body, they misunderstood immorality. And fourthly, where our focus is today, they misunderstood lordship. They understood what it meant to have Christ as their Lord. Verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now, lordship here is, is really illustrated with two examples. Verse 19, we have the example of a temple. And verse 20, we have the example of a slave. And these illustrations are really the opposite slogans that we hear in our society today, the opposite of different slogans you might hear. You might hear people shouting or chanting things like, my body, my rights. goes totally contrary to what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you are not your own. Your body is not your own. Your body belongs to the Lord, and he dwells in you if you are in Christ. I looked up um, the website of Amnesty International, legal organization fighting for human rights. This was a, was a quote from their website. It says this, quote, being able to make our own decisions about our health, our body, and sexual life is a basic human right. Not a lot's changed since first century Corinth. That would have been on their website as well. And so... Paul writes the Corinthians, and verses 19 through 20 are really kind of a capstone, capstone verses, really summarizing kind of all that he's been leading up to since chapter 5. And Paul is saying that those who are in Christ do not own their bodies. They have been given them by Christ, and like a temple, Christ has placed his Holy Spirit within them. 
Christians, aren't you glad that you're not your own? Isn't it a comfort that we do not own ourselves? If it's, you know, people say, well, if I owned myself, if I was really in control, I could do whatever I desired. I could be the king and ruler of my own life, but that would end up terribly. I think that, I think that innately children know this. I, I used to work for a youth organization with, with kids, teenagers, and what I found uh, really early on when I was in my 20s working with these young kids is that they wanted to know where the line was. They always wanted to know where the line was. And they would lead you to believe that they wanted the line not to be there. And so they were going to push as far as they could to see if they could say there's no line. And they led you to believe that freedom, true freedom, is if there's no line. But that's not the case. What they wanted was a line, and they wanted to know where the line was. I had one kid one time, I'll never forget it. We were camping, and we had a choir practice because we're getting ready to sing in a church. And this kid was really being, you know, he's really being, uh, you know, distracting. And so I said, you need to go to your tent. And if you come out of that tent, you're not going to get to go to the aquarium. We were in Nashville, Tennessee. We we're going to go to the aquarium. And this was kind of the, the big ultimatum. He was not to come out of his tent. And so he went over to the campsite where the tents were. And then I'm helping getting the song, singing going for this choir event. And not more than five minutes go by, and the kids start laughing and pointing behind me. And I know he's behind me, and I am just sure that he is out of his tent. I was proven wrong. He had pulled the stakes up out of his dome tent, turned it on its side like a habit trail, like a little ball that a hamster would be in, and he is running behind me in the tent as it's rolling along. Didn't cross the line, did he? But he wanted to know where it was, right? He knew where it was. And those of you who are parents, you'll find that if your children don't think there's a line, if they realize that they're ultimately in control and you are not in control of them, you're not trying to protect them, you're not trying to look after them, you're not trying to lead them, but they're on their own, they will be terrified. They will be terrified. I, and, and that's true of us, too. We would be terrible rulers of our own lives. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, it is a great privilege not to be one's own. Does any man think that it would be a pleasure to be his own? Let me assure him that there is no ruler that is so tyrannical as self. He that is his own master has a fool and a tyrant to be his lord. Who's better to be Lord of your life, you or the one who is holy, who is perfect, who's forgiving, who's loving, who sent his son to die for you as a sacrifice, who has redeemed you, who has washed you, who has cleansed you, who is preparing you to be a bride for his son, who is from eternity past and will be for eternity future and sees everything from an eternal perspective who do you want to be in control of your life? We are the Lord's. And it, it means that we want to do what he deems best, but it also means that he has placed his spirit within us. Paul reminds his readers that they have a possessor. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? 
sometimes it's, it's interesting to think about how differently people think about church, a church building, church property. I remember when, when I was in high school in youth group, there were a couple of kids in the youth group who were looking for a place to drink on a Friday night, and uh, the church was easy to break into. And so they broke into church with their booze, and they got drunk in the youth group room, and they, uh, I guess, were not really thinking when they left, and they left the open bottle of booze there in the youth room, so the youth pastor found it the, the next day. And then on Sunday, he was not happy and, and uh, actually went to the elders about it. Um, but I, I remember people being horrified that they were getting drunk at church. You know, there was, this, there was this like, at church. And in reality, we know that the bricks and mortar that build the church are the same that you're used for the firehouse or for your own house or for whatever. The sin isn't necessarily more... Uh, you know, grievous to the Lord. It's still sin. Um, but Paul's point here is that the Lord dwells in you. The Lord dwells in you. There's something different about our bodies. First Corinthians six seventeen. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now these passages can be confusing because. We often get confused when we talk about the Holy Spirit, and I've tried to simplify this in the past, and I'm going to try and give a little quiz uh, this morning um, just to see how we're doing. So uh, there's, I've tried to separate in my own mind, I've made it a practice too, and I want to teach this to each one of you so, that, so this is familiar with you, so when you come across passages, you can ask yourself, what kind of spirit involvement are we talking about here? But there is the filling of the Holy Spirit. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and those are three different activities of the Spirit, and different passages describe different ones. And so if someone could describe to me what the filling of the Holy Spirit is, and what is a passage that might really describe what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Does anyone have that? Okay, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not when you're born again. So that's, that's, a, that's a, a good, uh, both baptism of the Holy Spirit and indwelling of the Holy Spirit come with your born again, but the filling is different. So we can talk to about indwelling or baptism. What is a passage that might teach any of these? Yes. Okay, so Old Testament Holy Spirit is different than what we're talking about. An Old Testament indwelling of the Holy Spirit happened for a certain time in a certain way to certain individuals for God's purposes. Like Saul, King Saul was given the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who indwelled him, but that Spirit was taken away. And so David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, cried out in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, O God, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He cried that out because Saul, the Spirit had been removed from him. And in, in, in Old Testament times, God's Spirit could be given for a certain purpose but in New Testament times, we, we may sing, create me a clean heart and take not thy Holy Spirit from me, but we're not really asking him not to take away the Holy Spirit from us because if, if we are in Christ, we have his Holy Spirit and it will never be taken away, and that's part of the new covenant. So, yes. 
So it's true that she says that the, the, the Holy Spirit is filling us, and that uh, it, so it's passive, it's happening to us. Uh, in fact, one verse that would teach that is Ephesians 5.18, which says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a passive imperative. It's a command, you be filled. You, you know, be influenced by the Holy Spirit, be filled by. And we have a good idea from that passage of what it means to be filled with the Spirit because uh, it's contrasted with being drunk with wine. And someone who's drunk with wine cannot do what they normally would want to do. If the police officer says to him, close your eyes, stick your hands out and touch your nose, you know they're going for the forehead, right? It's, it's not going to happen. You've seen all the cop shows and, you know, walk this straight line, close your eyes. They're all over the place. They can't do it. Why? Because they're controlled or influenced by some other spirits or some other influence, right? Whereas being filled with the Holy Spirit is actually uh, being controlled by or influenced, doing what you wouldn't naturally want to do as a sinner, but doing what the Holy Spirit would want you to do. And so, being filled with the Spirit is living in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Did I have a question or a comment? Yes. Okay. So Acts 2-4 in the day of Pentecost is when they, the Holy Spirit came down and Paul, uh, God had, uh, Christ had promised before the ascension that the Holy Spirit would come and would indwell them. And so we have there them being filled by the Holy Spirit, but that was, see, this transition between Old Testament saints and New Testament, Christ has now uh, resurrected, and so the Spirit came down to be with them. And so we see that as an indwelling, and as time, different people groups uh, came, and the Spirit, as they came to faith in Christ, they were united with His Spirit. And passages that would teach us about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit would be Romans chapter 8, verse 9 would be one. So when we talk about the filling of the Spirit, we have Ephesians 5.18. The indwelling of the Spirit, Romans 8.9. I don't know how I remember that. I just remember that it's 8 and then 9 because 8 comes before 9. So if that helps you, great. But the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it says in Romans 8.9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So there's not such a thing as somebody who is a Spirit-indwelled Christian and a not-Spirit-indwelled Christian. It says very clearly in the singular there, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not a Christian. Every Christian is indwelled by the Spirit. That happens at regeneration. Filling of the Spirit, you're commanded. You're never commanded to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit because if you're a Christian, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But you are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit because it involves obedience and doing what the Spirit of God would have you do. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is also something you are not instructed to or commanded to ever do as a believer because if you are a believer, you also have been baptized. And a key verse for that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. I always remember that because... 13 comes right after 12. I don't know if that helps you, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so the word to baptize actually means to immerse. And so it means that we have been placed into the body of Christ corporately. 
And earlier in our study of 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, he talked about each one of us being part of the body and the spirit dwelling and the temple, but it was more of a picture of we are the individual bricks that make up the temple, and so we're part of that temple where God dwells. But the Bible also teaches about individual dwelling of the spirit, and so Christ is in you. Christ is in you. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17 seems to be to me, to speaking primarily about baptism of the Holy Spirit, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. You have been baptized into the body of Christ. You are one with Christ. You're united with Christ spiritually. But that doesn't mean that Christ is no longer concerned about our physical bodies. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it seems to be emphasizing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. So in Corinth, they had a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And part of their worship in Corinth is they had a thousand temple prostitutes. And in Corinthian worship, Corinthian Greek slash secular worship, the temple of Aphrodite prostitution was a consecration. But in the Christian temple, that is the temple of the indwelling Holy Spirit, prostitution is desecration. It defiles. And because Christ is everywhere with you, where you go, and this is key. I think this is key. There are, when, you, when you are struggling with sexual sin, especially sexual habitual sin, there are some keys. One of them is Romans 6, which I already mentioned, which is to realize that sin shall not have dominion over you. That if you are in Christ, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, There is no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. And so there's always a way of escape. Sin shall not have dominion over you. It doesn't mean you'll never struggle with sin as a Christian, but there is no life-dominating sin that characterizes you. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about these life-dominating sins that characterize them prior to Christ, but you were washed. What you're known as after, what you're, what, you're, what you're identified with after coming to faith in Christ is not your old sin, but it is now your righteousness in Christ. It's Christ whom you're identified with, your life is hidden in him. That's why when people identify themselves more by their old sin rather than by their identification with Christ, there's a concern about what's going on in their life spiritually. If someone says to you they're a non-practicing lesbian Christian uh, or a homosexual Christian, a practicing homosexual Christian, they're identifying themselves with sin and Christ, which is defilement. So we are identifying ourselves with righteousness and with Christ if we are to try to glorify our Lord. And so when we think about, um, so that's the one key is that sin shall not have dominion. But another one is this, and, and, and you will struggle, I think, with habitual sin until you think about the fact that Christ dwells in you that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that when you sin, you're not just sinning against other people, and you're not sinning in secret or in private. You can have accountability partners, and you can confess your sin to them, and they can help keep you accountable, and that can be effective, and that's good, but it's not as good as recognizing that you 
have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. You can have other means. You can set up for yourselves consequences if you sin or rewards if you don't sin, and that can be effective, but it is not nearly as important as having Christ dwell in you, nor is it nearly as effective. But the day that you realize everything you do involves Christ, if you have repented of your sins, if you've recognized, hey, I am a sinner, I have no hope of salvation, I can't save myself, and so you've fallen on your knees and you said, Lord, I'm a wretched sinner. I no longer want to be the master of my own life. I yield my life over to you. I give it to you. I've been in slavery to sin, and it has never been beneficial for me. Free me from the slavery of sin. I want to be your slave. I want you to be my Lord, my master. I give my life completely to you. Do with it as you will. Use whatever means necessary to make me holy. My life is yours. May I be indwelled with your spirit. May I be baptized into the body of Christ. May I walk and endeavor to walk being filled with the Holy Spirit. I desire to be clean, to be purified, and and for you to change my life. I give it to you. I confess my sin. I ask you to redeem me. I, I have no hope of redemption or of resurrection to be with the Lord without you. So save me. When that happens... You are not only saved and cleansed, but you now have Christ dwelling in you, and so and 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 you are involving him in everything you do. What you see, he sees. What you listen to, he listens to. What you watch, he watches. What you do, you're involving him. And shall you do that? May it never be. Shall you involve him in immorality? May it never be be. So that is the illustration there that you are part of, you are, you, you, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And I think that's an important thing because, and I mentioned this uh, last week or two weeks ago, somebody had asked me, well, why doesn't God just take away the temptation? Why is this a struggle? And my answer to this individual was, God desires a relationship with you. And we're such sinners that if we could just say, hey, God, take away the temptation, and boom, we'd move on to something else and revel in that and say, hey, God, take away the temptation, and boom. And we would just keep on making up new sins, just, just, and that would be our whole relationship, is just sinning and then just saying, hey, take this away. He desires to change you. He wants a relationship with you, and you will not be able to overcome that sin until you realize this is a relationship. Lord, help me. Help me because I'm driving down the freeway and I see a billboard and now I'm tempted to take a second look. And my car has these great devices that are made to block billboards and I fold them down so I don't see them, right? These visors that come down. But, but you know, when you do take a second look, it's not I need to tell my accountability partner or I need to punish myself or I'm so holy now because I didn't look. It's Lord only by your grace I didn't look. Or it's, Lord, I sinned against you. I made a covenant with my eyes. Please forgive me. I've broken that covenant. I need your help. This is my relationship with you. Make me holy. Change me. And that relationship becomes daily, hourly, every second, every minute. That's the relationship. It's one where you share your joys with him. It's one where you share your struggles with him. It's where he is your Lord. It's where you recognize the temple relationship you have with the Spirit. 
The second illustration in our passage is in verse 20, actually the end of verse 19, where it says, and, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In the first century, there was slavery, and you could enter into slavery three different ways. You could be born into slavery, because you're born to the parents of slaves. You could uh, be conquered by a nation, and they could either kill you all or say you could serve as slaves, and you could say, oh, we'll be your slaves, and so you enter in that way. Or you could be indebted to someone with a debt that you couldn't possibly pay, and so therefore your life could be put in as an indentured servant or a servant uh, until the debt could be paid off or, or forever, or now you're a slave or whatever. So, so you could be indebted to them. Sometimes that could be voluntarily, but oftentimes it was just simply this person has not paid his debt, like the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. But as Christians, we are uh, really, prior to coming to faith in Christ, we are slaves to sin. We are born into it because of Adam. We are conquered by it because of our own actions, and we are indebted because Christ is holy, and we can never be holy without him on our own strength. So all three really apply to us. But you could be bought out of slavery through the principle of redemption. If you've given your life to Christ, you no longer own your body. It has been bought at a price, according to verse 20. And there's a great passage I want us to turn to in Hosea. So if you you bear with me and just keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 6 and turn back with me to Hosea. There after the Psalms. Um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, the minor prophets there, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Hosea chapter 3, this chapter is 81 words, but it's really one of the most glorious proclamations you'll find in all of Scripture. Hosea was told to marry Gomer. Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, prostituting herself to the extent that somehow she ends up in a slave market. And chapter 3 of Hosea, the first two verses we'll look at, says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Raisin cakes was associated with immorality and idolatry. Verse 2, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. You can imagine the scenario. This man's wife runs away becomes a prostitute, ends up in such a terrible state that she's in a slave market being auctioned off. He goes down there. His wife. In those days, you were auctioned off naked, humiliating. 30 shekels was an average price for a slave, according to Exodus. The auction starts off five shekels, Five shekels. Somebody, you know, he says, six, seven, eight, 12 shekels. He says, 13, 14 shekels. He says, 15 shekels. Not budging. 
Somebody says, 15 shekels and a homer of barley. Barley was food for animals. Some say it was worth more. Some say it was worth less. I don't know. But Hosea says, 15 shekels and a homer and a half of barley. And the auctioneer says, sold. And he brings his wife home. And the reason this is such a glorious proclamation is this is a picture of God's love. God is a God of love. This is his love for Israel, as expressed in Hosea chapter 3, 1, where the word love is found four times, and the connection is quite clear. God is saying that he loves Israel, even though they love idols. And he tells Hosea, as an example of his love, you go love your wife, though she loves other men. Charles Feinberg said this, just as Gomer still retains the love of the prophet, Israel is beloved by God. Israel is engraven on the hands of God, Isaiah 49. She is the apple of his eye, Zechariah 2.8. And even after centuries of disobedience on the part of his people, God could rebuke, accusing Satan that the all-prevailing answer that he had chosen, Jerusalem, Zechariah 3.2. But what stands out for us is that we, as a church, who have called upon the name of the Lord and asked him to save us, to redeem us, to buy us back. We were not paid with 15 shekels of silver and a, a homer and a half of barley. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 says that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold or from our aimless conduct. We were not redeemed from our aimless conduct received by tradition from our fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. How sweet reconciliation is in light of the price that has been paid for us. Our bodies are a temple of the Spirit, and we are slaves. Our bodies are not our own. The message is clear. They belong to our Lord. We are his slaves, and we should glorify him. Take a look back at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Do not misunderstand freedom. Do not misunderstand the body or immorality or what lordship is all about but rather call upon these principles to help you flee from immorality. Because God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, is worthy of our obedience and our adoration. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word. Thank you for just the, the grace that we see bestowed by your love 
by sending your son as a sacrifice. We're thankful, Father, for these two illustrations we've looked at this morning, the illustration of a temple, a temple, a place that was a place of debauchery for the Corinthians, but is a place of holiness for you. Help us to live worthy of that calling. Help us also to be mindful that we are not our own, that we belong to you. We're so thankful for that. And we ask you, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, that your name would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus and in us throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.